0: We've been talking about um, the Old Testament covenants. We've kind of been tracking through the Old Testament passages of the lectionary. We started with the Noahic covenant and talked about God's covenant with all of creation, not to destroy the world like that again, um, and talked about some of the implications that is to us to serve a God who's in covenant relationship with the whole world. And then after that, we moved to the Abrahamic covenant. We talked about how God wanted to bless the whole world, and so he chose a people. A particular people to um, to be his own, and uh, and what that meant, and the, kind of the implications of that, and God's um, kind of decision to 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 move in this certain way, and that that created a ton of responsibility for those people. That a lot of times we feel like God's choosing is a is a blessing, and it is, but it also means a responsibility. It means that you have been chosen to be the light unto the world. You've been chosen to be the light unto the nations. And a lot of times um, I think Israel would almost be happy to hand over that responsibility to someone else because it's a heavy burden. Um, And so we talked about what that means to us, to be a people who God has called to bless the world. And uh, and that he does it generally in small ways, like the birth of a child um, or just doing good in the world or being nice to your neighbor. Um, And then we moved on to the Mosaic Covenant and we talked about um, how God for the first time kind of wrote down his word and what it means to serve a God who kind of inspires somebody to put his will on paper, if you will, and kind of the creation of the Bible, really. Um, we assume he had ways of speaking to people before that, but this is the first time he kind of wrote it down and he created a people gathered around his word for kind of the very first time, um, which is kind of who we are. And so talked about the implications of that a little bit, and then we moved on um, Two weeks ago to the serpent in the wilderness um, where God creates this issue of faith. If you will look at this thing, you will be healed. If you will um, kind of uh, lift up this, this thing and put your faith in it, I will move and touch you and heal you. And, uh, and Jesus kind of draws that into, into his um, world and says, uh, you know, just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. And, uh, and so we know that as we put faith in that, um, it saves. And then last week we brought out Jeremiah's new covenant, where Jeremiah spoke of a day when there would be a new covenant, um, and it would be different, fundamentally different from the Mosaic covenant. Um, and we talked last week about some of those differences and then some of the similarities that he uh, primarily said he was going to write his law on their hearts, and it would be this kind of internal um, dialogue with God, uh, and and that that has some major implications on how we live. That it, it's way tougher to judge people when you can't see inside their hearts, when you don't know what God is speaking to their hearts and how they are interpreting us. And that really, in this new covenant context, um, judging others is not um, appropriate. We can we have the law written on our hearts. We can judge ourselves. We can judge our own behaviors. Is this right for me? Is it wrong for me? Should I do this? Should I not do this? But I can't look at someone else and say, should they do this? Should they not do this? You have to stop doing this because I can't see what God has written on your hearts. So we've been kind of tracking and watching these covenants kind of narrow down um, each week. We started with the, with the Noahic covenant with the whole world. And then it went down to, to Abraham's um, seed. And then from there to, to the people gathered around the word and then the people who have faith Um, kind of within that, and then last week it gets down to the individual and the writing on each of our hearts, so it's just been kind of honing in as we've gone, and this week we're going to go even smaller, um, which takes us to Isaiah, our passage from tonight, and I think what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of pull out some of the details um, through this passage as we go. So it starts with this, the Lord God has given me a tongue, uh, the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So this is Jewish poetry. We talked a few weeks back now about Jewish poetry and how it's a structural poetry, not a lyric poetry. So it doesn't necessarily rhyme or even sound pretty. It's almost to be viewed rather than heard like it. And so there's a a lot of structural differences. I don't want to go super deep into this one, but it uses a lot of repetition. And this one does kind of have it because it kind of has this, there's a a set structure where the the main point goes in the middle and then you frame it on both ends with, um, with, with a saying that repeats. And that's kind of what happens here. But this to me is a beautiful picture of Emmanuel, of the incarnation of Jesus becoming human. If you, uh, if you see what's going on here, he's, he's, He says, God has given me a tongue, and it's not a tongue of the teacher, but a tongue of the taught, a tongue of the student. And so um, it's kind of this image of somebody up here being given uh, like a seat in the class and getting to see it from that side. He's he's given me an ear of those who are taught. So you can picture Jesus um, being put in this position where for the first time ever, he's seeing what it's like from the other side. Paul puts it this way in Philippians. Um, He says... Have this mind among yourselves, um, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant um, and being born in the likeness of men. So Isaiah, Isaiah kind of sees this moment where Jesus, um, being in an equal position with God, being the divine, takes on humanity, like he kind of steps down from this place to see what it's like in the other place. And and, it's, uh, and this movement is huge in our faith because it's a movement toward. It's a movement into the mess, into the mire. Um, he doesn't stay off and aloof. Um, he kind of moves into our pain. And so a lot of times, um, God doesn't take us out of the mess. He moves into it with us. Like this, this direction that... That Jesus always seems to be going um, is is instrumental in God's relationship to humanity. That He comes to us. That we don't have to go to Him. We don't necessarily chase Him down. He comes and meets us. That He's always the one moving toward. Generally, we're the ones moving away. It's our rebellion that drives us away from God, and we run from God. and And we find that God is always drawing toward us. When we turn toward Him, He's always standing right there in this in this toward. Movement. So the big question here after Jesus is is taking on humanity, taking on flesh um, in the incarnation is why? And it's right here in the middle. This is that kind of key uh, statement in the structural poetry that's in the middle of the two framed pieces. Um, it says that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Um, and this tells us something about the experience of, um, of Jesus living as a human and and, and why is that he wanted to um, to know how to in essence, be there for us, how to empathize with our pain, how to what it was like when we pray to Jesus, um, He knows what we're going through, he knows what we're experiencing, he's felt what it feels like to wear skin. Um, Hebrews says it. Like this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect, or one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Isaiah saw this time when Jesus would in essence, see what it's like to live like us, so that He could sympathize with us. Um, and so, when we go to Him, we don't go to Him like a God who's aloof. Like and when you think of some of the other, you know, religions, some of the other, especially back in that day, some of the big polytheistic religions, the gods were always these unknowable, untouchable, you know, deities that that you were just trying to appease. That was your best hope was just to make them happy, so that they would make it rain on your crops or do whatever. Um, The idea that they might truly know you, that they might truly be able to like empathize with what you've been through wasn't in in the cards. That wasn't even part of it. And so when Jesus comes and the divinity puts on flesh um, and walks among us, it changes things. But there's also another aspect um, of Jesus' human life that's important to catch that, that I think Isaiah gets here. It says, The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards and this is kind of interesting because um and we're going to spend a little bit more time on this later but um we've got a tendency in in the christian faith to think that um that really jesus could have been born and died and that was really all we needed like those are the two key elements and and we kind of we kind of do that with advent and lent a little bit but um it's even in the nicene creed which i i i totally adhere to and love the nicene creed but it just says that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Just kind of leaves out that 33 years in the middle there. Like that wasn't really that big a deal. What was important was that he come and be born, Emmanuel, incarnation, that aspect, and that he die for us. And really that's all that was important. And I don't think that's true. I think that, the, that what happened in the living was valuable too. And I think that, uh, that it has a couple of reasons. First, um, I think that Jesus' life, his living, shows us what life can look like. And this, I think, is really important to catch um, because, uh, and Bill and I have talked about this a lot, um, is that Jesus didn't, uh, didn't ever tell us what the kingdom of God was. I don't know if you've ever caught that. He, like, never does say, this is exactly what it looks like. This is exactly how you're going to know um, when you see it. He tells us what it was like. Like the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a woman who lost some silverware and then found it. The kingdom of God is like a man who had two sons and one ran away. The kingdom of God is like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and one went. Like He keeps telling us what it's like, but he never tells us what it is. And I think that this is important because that's really Jesus' life kind of becomes a giant parable to us is that we've talked about the law and how we can get caught up between the letter of the law and the, uh, and the spirit of the law, and, how, and I've been using the example of you know, my clean, telling the kids to clean the house. You can tell them, clean the house, I want the house cleaned. And they're like, okay. And then they, you find out that what they think is clean is not what you think is clean, and so that's obviously not going to work. You can't just tell them to clean the house. So you give them a list, this is what I want done. And so they work the list and they go exactly down the list. And then there's some new mess that you didn't think about that they just ignore because it wasn't on the list. And you're like, I thought you were going to clean the house. And they're like, I did. I did everything on the list. And you're like, that right there, how could you call that clean? It's not on the list. And so we can get caught up in between. And actually, this is kind of funny because Esther um, has actually done, this is what she's done now. She has now gone into every room and she has cleaned it the way she wants it cleaned. And she takes a picture from every angle. And she tells him, until it looks like this, it's not clean. This is what, and so, what's that? Right? Yeah. She's been at it a minute. So, uh, so yeah, she, so she gives him a picture, like, and until, and so now, um, and this is one thing I love about phones is because one of the challenges we have in getting our house cleaned is is, uh, is we, can't, we can't physically go check every time. It's just not time. You know, is your room clean? Yep. And you got to walk well, all the way downstairs and look. No, it's not. You didn't pick that up. there's just not have time for that. And so Esther started going. They come in. Hey, all my children, can I go do something? You're like, you hand them the phone. Take pictures. And so they run out and they have to take pictures of all the rooms they cleaned and come back. And if your picture doesn't look like my picture, it's not clean yet. And so, in a sense, that is what Jesus' life becomes. Because the scripture can be confusing. And there are passages when if you really hone in on a passage, you might not even like God. Like God can tell you to do things and you're like, man, God was a jerk in that passage. I don't even know that, that, that I get that. How does that fit with this? And, you know, and, and we can get lost. And, and you can find a handful of verses to back almost anything you ever want to do in life. If you just kind of pull them out of context, you can use them to defend almost anything. And the beautiful thing about Jesus' life is whatever interpretation you come up with, whatever you go and you study, and this is what you see, you can look and go, does it come out looking like this? Does my interpretation of the Scripture, does my interpretation of God, does my, does my take on Torah look like this? Does it ultimately come out looking like Jesus? This is the picture does my picture come out looking like this picture? If you come up with an interpretation of something in the Old Testament or something from some passage of Scripture, and it doesn't look like Jesus, then you just got it wrong. You got to go back and work it again, because it's not clean yet. It's not this. It's not if it's not a person who who breaches social and and uh, racial barriers. If it's not a person who um, who challenges. Um, authority and political structures, if it's not a person who loves and shows compassion on somebody that everybody else wants to throw rocks at, if it's not a person who, um, who gets angry when they see other people being abused and taken advantage of, if it's not a person who loves like that and lives like that, then you, and then a person who ultimately is willing to absorb the abuse and pain of the world for others. If that's not the picture you come up with, then you got the picture wrong then you got something wrong. Then then something in your understanding of the letter of the law or the spirit of the law didn't fully match up because Jesus gave us a picture. He lived it so that we could see what it was supposed to look like. There's another reason though um, that that I think those 33 years are important and, and this is what kind of relates back to the covenants we've been talking about especially the Mosaic Covenant is that the Mosaic Covenant had this big if in it. I don't know if you remember we talked about it for a while. If you keep my commandments. Then I will. It's this big if-then covenant. And last week we looked at Jeremiah's uh, prophecies of this new covenant, and he kind of contrasted it with the Mosaic covenant. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So Israel broke that covenant. They didn't keep it. And so, so there's, something, um, uh, there's something challenging when you have a God who is faithful to His covenants, even when we're not, and a people who are not faithful to their aspect of the covenants. This big if-then. Um, and so you, you, you get stuck wondering, so what, what happens in that case? And many of the Jews just assume that they hadn't broken the covenant. They just assume that they lived. I mean, I'm always thunderstruck when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what do I do to to get into heaven? And he says, well, keep all the commandments. And he goes, this I've done since my youth. Like, just assumes that he's actually done perfect up until then. But, uh, but when Jesus shows up, he starts to preach and teach about, um, you know, the, the true understanding of Torah. And he starts to say, you you count out your herbs and you miss the weightier matters, these huge things like justice and mercy that were all through the Torah and you're not stressing those at all. And, and he starts to show that, you know, you don't have to stone people when they mess up and it, and it leaves people wondering. So, so if this is what it looks like, then what happened to that covenant? Like, is that covenant done then? Is does it just Trump that one? Is that one just no longer any good? Is it wiped away? Like, if, if this is what it looks like, then I, I assume we don't need that one um, until Jesus adds this. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot um, will pass away from the law until it's accomplished. So Jesus um, didn't come to get rid of those things or trump those things, but he came to fulfill them, to personally Fulfill them. Um, so here's a Jew standing, kind of in this huge if of the Mosaic covenant, and he fulfills the if. He fulfills the if you will, then I will. So Jesus, um, kind of in his person, uh, fulfills this this covenant, which I think is poignant when we look back at this line uh, by Isaiah, where he says, um, "It's uh, the Lord our the Lord the Lord God has opened my ears." And I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. So he kind of stands unique amongst the people as the one who didn't um, turn away and break the covenant. I did not break the covenant. Kind of which brings us probably to the most unique element of Isaiah's writings. Um, and that's how clearly he saw the Messiah. Um, and this is, this is kind of um, what Isaiah is known for. A lot of people call the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel. Because he seemed to have such a clear picture um, of Jesus as the suffering servant that most of the um, prophets missed. Uh, Most of the prophets talked about, and we talked about this last year, most of the prophets were expecting a Messiah, but they were expecting this big um, military and political leader. Um, That's what they came to know as a Messiah, um, was these people who would come and slaughter the enemy. And we actually, uh, Palm Sunday, we talked last Palm Sunday um, about some of the metaphors that occurred on Palm Sunday with the palm branches. And the people were screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which comes from a psalm where the, the key figure in all these psalms is, and in the name of the Lord, he will crush them. Like it's this almost violent, uh, they were expecting the Messiah to come, and when he would come in the name of the Lord, he would crush the enemy. It would be this kind of devastating um, military victory in this context over Rome is what they were hoping for. Um, and then they took off their cloaks and laid them in the street for Jesus to pass over. And the last time Israel had done that was with Jehu who had killed, I think we did a body count. It was a couple thousand, maybe people in, in a, basically a month period of time to free Israel from bondage one time. And, and so he was, uh, and it was brutal. Like when you read it, it sounds harsh. It's like mafia stuff. Like, and, uh. And I mean, and he got such a reputation of it that he, when he rode up on Jezebel, she was calling down insults from the from the wall. And he looked at her servants who were standing right next to her, and basically like, if you'll just throw her over, we'll spare you. And they tossed her over and she died when she hit the ground. And and yeah, it was uh, so like he just and so he just this violent um, deliverance. And then uh, the last was the palm branches. Um, that they were waving, which comes from the, the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament, which is a celebration of the deliverance from Egypt, which you know was this, this huge event where thousands and thousands, maybe millions of Egyptians were, were killed. And so their understanding of Messiah was this um, kind of warring, bloody um, victor that was going to come in and physically free Israel from, from Roman bondage. And Jesus rides in on a donkey. And he, and he, and he draws on this one reference from Zechariah uh, where um, it says that you know, your king will ride in on a donkey, the fall of a donkey. And then the very next verse says you know, he'll, he'll take the sword from Israel and, and, uh, and make peace with the nation. So Jesus chooses this messianic metaphor that, is, uh, that it's a metaphor of peace and a metaphor of love and the people caught that what he was saying. They caught that he was saying, that this, I'm the Messiah. And they caught that part, but they responded with this, like, yes, bless, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, which explains why in basically one week's time, when he just comes in peacefully and turns himself over, the people flipped on him. They were like, this is not what we were expecting. This is not the Messiah we were looking for. And so that's, that's why in such a short period of time, you can see this kind of flip from the people. But, um, but Isaiah, Isaiah um, didn't see that Messiah. Most of the other prophets did. They saw this big kind of victorious um, Messiah. Isaiah saw a different Messiah. Isaiah, um, and he kind of stands unique in the Old Testament, is the one who really saw the suffering Messiah. And, uh, and we'll kind of catch it here um, a little bit. He says, he says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard i hid my face from disgrace and spitting or i hid not my face from disgrace and spitting but the lord god helps me therefore i have not been disgraced and so this is like there's a lot of things that jesus did that fulfilled prophecies that he could have known about the prophecy and he could have chosen to fulfill it kind of on purpose but Somebody ripping out your beard and spitting on you. Like some of this stuff that Isaiah saw is in, is incredibly detailed. Um, and it's stuff that nobody could have like made happen. It was just a, an amazing prediction um, uh, that Isaiah kind of made concerning this Messiah. Um, and what's interesting here is that this person Isaiah is referring to um, says, the Lord God helps me. Um, therefore I've not been disgraced, which is interesting because to a, to a Jew, to kind of a Jewish theology, if you're not being blessed, if you're being abused like this, well, then God is not with you. Like the way you know, God is with you is because you are, um, victorious. And that's, it was just, it's kind of standard. I mean, not that you can't see a different approach in, in, in the old Testament, but that was just kind of a standard take is that the way you know, God is present is that you are victorious. And when you're not victorious, then God is clearly not present. So here's this suffering servant who is clearly not victorious. He's being abused. as He's being spit on. And yet he says, God is absolutely with me. I've not been disgraced. Which would have called into question um, some, of the, some of the theologies of the day. But even in the midst of this torment, um, uh, Jesus knows that he hasn't been abandoned. That, or this suffering servant, this Messiah knows... He hasn't been abandoned because he's kept his part. He's kept his if in the if then that he's done what he was supposed to do. And this shows up even more in the, as the passage continues. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Um, and so and this is my favorite part of this passage. And, and it's the fact that whoever this is that Isaiah is writing about, obviously we believe it's Jesus, but this, this servant that Isaiah is Isaiah's, um, talking about knows that, I mean, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God is, is on his side, that God has chosen him, that ultimately... And, and so simply put, this passage is that God has chosen Jesus. And this is absolutely key to understanding the New Testament, is that God's ultimate covenant is with Jesus. It's, it's that He has chosen Jesus. He chose Noah in the beginning to, to continue the human race. He chose Abraham and therefore the Jewish people. He chose Moses and those who gather around the Scripture. He chose people who look on him with faith. He he chose those whose word is in his heart. But ultimately, at the end of the day, God chose Jesus. And we see this throughout Jesus' life where God says, This is my son in who I am well pleased. It happens twice when he comes up from baptism and and other people hear it. And on Mount of Transfiguration, we see these moments where God says, This is it. This is the one I choose. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then obviously we find out that resurrection was the ultimate sign of approval, that not even death um, could, could stop um, this choosing. So how do we respond to this? Um, ultimately, I think as we face uh, Palm Sunday, as we face Easter, is to know that it's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Jesus. Ultimately, this whole story is about Jesus. Everything depends on Jesus. The covenant isn't really between God and us. It's between the Father and the Son. It's between God and Jesus. We have access to the Father because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about me. The heart of the gospel is Him and purely Him. Not us, not humanity, not the church, not even salvation, ultimately. Though these things are all important, the heart of the gospel is Jesus. Pure and simple. His beauty, His love, His life. It's all about Him. So much of the Christian focus and Christian life becomes, how do I get to heaven? Like, what do I have to do? how do How do I get there? Or, is this thing okay for me to do? Or is that thing okay for me to do? Or should people do this should people do that and usually the the right answer is it's not about you this is about Jesus this is about his glory and his wonder and majesty usually we can sum up all these answers i mean even even love God and love people which we know is the sum of the old testament even that can be can become this like burden of you know, is this love or is that love? And how do I show love? Do I show love according to the way they would want me to show love or show love according to the way I would want to show love? What would be love to me? And like, you can even get tangled up on that. And the answer is usually Jesus. It's about Jesus. Like we have a, you know, that cliche, what would Jesus do? I think if we honestly could do away with the bracelets and the cliche, that's probably the most theological question we could ever ask. That's probably... Somebody probably hit on one of the deepest theological questions on the planet: is this is not about you; it's about Jesus. At the very center of our universe should be Jesus. God's eyes are firmly fixed on Him. Whatever blessing we have, whatever favor we have, whatever access we have, it's because of Him. And this should be freeing to us, because at the end of the day, we should know it's not on our shoulders. It's not about us doing it just right. It's not about us, you know, not failing. It's not about us messing everything up or not messing everything up or what we have to do or not do. It's about Jesus. And that ultimately as we pursue him, we fall underneath that. We fall in with that. And we can make it so technical and we can make it so complicated. And the truth of the deal is it's all about him. it's um I had a kind of a word picture which is pointed right now because Bill, a good friend of mine, is going through some business stuff, but it's we have a tendency to uh to treat scripture and treat our relationship with God like an operating agreement you know in a in a business you know which which uh, ultimately you never, ever use an operating agreement until something goes wrong. I don't know. I mean, you guys are in business, but or a contract or anything like how many of you like. <laughs> uh, someone said this to me just earlier today just popped in my head. But um, how many of you like regularly think about your marriage vows? You usually don't until you're like, you know, OK, for better or worse, for better or worse. The better or worse. Like that's when the vowels pop back in your head, right? When everything's like rough, you know? <laughs> yes, people get throwing elbows over here. Um, and so it's like, geez, we have a tendency to think of our salvation that way. Like it's this contract, this hard written contract that we refer back to and. And we try to work out the fine details and the fine print. And did I say everything I was supposed to say? Did I do everything I was supposed to do? And we get caught in these questions of, of you know, were you baptized? Were you not baptized? And if you were baptized, were you dunked or were you sprinkled? Because that matters. And, you know, we, and we get all tangled up in these fine details. And at the center of this covenant is Jesus and his love for us and his heart for us we didn't we don't we didn't choose him he chose us that he wants us and gave himself for us and i don't want to like confuse this with self-denial or self-flagellation or something like we don't matter in this whole equation because that's really once you get into that it's it's just kind of a passive aggressive way of of self-worship i think you know usually when we get too into and thinking our our problems don't matter to God, you know, blah blah. Because blah. I because I don't think that's it either. I mean, I have <laughs> I have this tendency. I've had three times in my adult life where I didn't know how to get out of a situation, and I dreamed it, and it I dreamed of a solution, and it turned out exactly in real life the way it did in my dream. The first time was uh, newly married, and I. Uh, uh, locked my keys in the car. We didn't have enough money to call a locksmith. We had no more keys. And I had a dream of taking this sword that I got when I was young and really dorky and, and using it to slide into the car and pop the lock. I had a dream and I, I, and I didn't even know where this sword was but in my dream it was in the corner of the attic way upstairs. So I wake up I run up to the attic and I kid you not, it's sitting right where it was in my dream. I run down, the sucker slides through the door just like it was supposed to and it just reached the lock. I did this and it popped open and I was in. And I was like, whoa, that was nuts. And, uh, and so it happened another time with uh, trying to figure out how to put a dishwasher in my kitchen. And then it happened just maybe a year or two ago with uh, an automotive part. And, uh, and I thought I was going to have to replace all the brake lines in my whole van. Um, because they rusted through, and I wake up in the morning and i I sat up and I rolled over because I had a dream that I was on Amazon. I was dreaming about amazon and I, and I clicked on a thing, and this picture of this this union is on Amazon, and it had a yellow background and it blah 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 and i have never seen one of these before in my life and I wake up and I, I get my phone and I open the Amazon app, and it, the phone 's too bright because it 's still dark. And I, I just kind of search for a keyword and I kid you not, the yellow background and everything, the picture pops up and it's a break thing. And I turn off my phone and I set an explicative and my wife says, what? And I was like, ah, God just gave me another dream. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and she said, about what? I said, the, the, the van breaks. And she just laughed because she thinks it's awesome and whenever I can't figure something out, she goes, ah, you'll dream about it. And I'm like, babe, it's not a formula. You can't do that. Like, You can't just count on that. But I, what's funny is I get frustrated. I'm like, I get up in the morning and, and I'm excited and I'm happy that I know how to fix my van brakes. But at the same time, I'm like, God, with all the hungry people in the world, you're wasting your time fixing my van brakes. I just don't even understand how that works. And like, I'm, I'm literally like almost bummed that, but that's our God. And so I'm not saying it's that he doesn't care about us. I'm not saying the little things don't matter to him. I'm not saying he's not interested in our problems because that's, that's not the truth. I mean, all I'm saying is as we try to sort out these covenants, as we try to sort out what our faith is about and what Christianity is ultimately about, it's about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. And though I'll stand up here and I will throw theological stuff at you and I'll throw historical stuff and I'll throw philosophical stuff. Ultimately, if I don't just put Jesus in the middle of it all and, and try to get you captivated and absolutely in love with Jesus, the real Jesus, the loving Jesus who who challenges us to be better, who challenges us to love more, who pushes us to make the world a better place for other people and advance the kingdom of God so that the world is closer to the way he originally intended it to be. If I'm not trying to get you to fall in love with that Jesus, then nothing else I have to say theologically matters. Because he's at the center of everything. He's at the center of the whole thing. And we can tangle it up, but at the end of the day, it has to come back to Jesus. It's all about Him and His glory and His beauty and His majesty and, his, and, and the way He just captivates our hearts. So as we go to the table tonight, um, my prayer is that for this last week, this is Holy Week, this last week before Easter, um, that you might open up your heart to just fall in love with Jesus. And if, you know, maybe dive into one of the Gospels and just read about him and read about um, the things he did and who he was and the way he worked Um, and that you might just let him capture your heart and try not to get tangled up in in the, the fine details but just try to fall in love with Jesus.